welcome to the Investing Mastermind podcast. I am Sina Linholt. And I'm Michelle Markey. Today, we wanted to give you a glimpse into our lives behind the scenes of this podcast and share with you a little bit more of who we are and why we wanted to share our knowledge and passion about investing with the world through this podcast. And Michelle, do you want to go ahead and say a few words about yourself? Yeah, so from where I'm coming from, I was not formally educated in uh, finance or economics, like I've taken classes in it, but I didn't become an accountant or I didn't get an MBA or master of business administration, but I have a master of science, but all of my educational background was not rooted in financial, professional, anything. So for me, I actually uh, am a project management professional and I was going to work one day and thought, is there a better way to generate wealth than just only working my normal nine to five job? And even though I'd been saving and investing through my tax advantaged retirement accounts, I was just sort of wondering, is there anything more I could be doing? So I became inspired through listening to a bunch of investing podcasts and reading more books that were easier for me to relate to that really helped me to understand more about personal finance and investing. And that really kicked off my entry into this world of investing like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And uh, there's so much more I could say, but Sina, I want to also ask you, how did you get to this point where you're investing like this? I am an educated journalist and I am actually educated within uh, political and financial journalism. But after I graduated, I started working for a lifestyle magazine like Cosmopolitan. Uh, so I didn't pursue a career within financial journalism. I enjoyed working for that magazine a lot. We had so much fun, but there was something missing in my life of, um, of investigating companies, which was something I really enjoyed. So since I was in my early 20s, uh, I had been trying to to invest in stocks and different other kinds of assets and also took quite a few courses. I took a day trading course where I learned about technical analysis. I learned about technical indicators, but I, I was still questioning, isn't there some investing strategy? I just didn't feel that it was an investing strategy for me. And then one summer I was, you know, home alone, the kids were not home and my husband they were out visiting family and I grabbed a book and it was invested by Danielle Town and her dad Phil Town and that's when I found my investing strategy something that absolutely resonated with me the Warren Buffett style of investing which is really common sense we're not trying to draw head and shoulders or trying to predict anything about the stocks. It is really about common sense. And also I, the control freak in me really like this because I can control a lot of my homework here. So, so that's how I got into, to the Warren Buffett style investing. It was through Danielle and Phil. What actually happened after you listened to that podcast, did you immediately like the style of investing or did you go back to to maybe your old patterns of of investing or what actually happened to you michelle 
Well, back in 2017, I came across a number of investing podcasts, including Invested by Phil and Danielle Town. And that one really opened up my eyes. And I had that one downloaded as well as a bunch of others, including the We Study Billionaires and several other ones that I thought were really good. And what resonated with me especially was just how relatable Danielle and Phil made it. And when they came out with the invested book, that just reinforced everything I'd been listening to in the previous year. And I was like, this makes sense. They explain the Buffett methodology so clearly. And like by Danielle asking the kinds of questions she did, she helped all of us who were not really familiar with this style of investing at all to start learning it in the same way she did, like from scratch. So in, in some ways, like you, I also started earlier off in my life just investing in stocks and not really being sure what I was invested in. And I had been in some index funds and used a robo-advisor before, which were all right. But I didn't think that they would get me the kinds of returns I was hoping for, like above average. And to me, above average would be probably above the stock market's historical average of 7 to 10%. So ideally, I'd like to be above 10% if possible. But, you know, that there's nothing wrong with getting at least average. So, yeah, I, I started out that way and, you know, it, it immediately clicked. And would you like to add to that? No, I was just thinking about with the rate of return that you were talking about, because my husband and I, we, we actually hired an independent financial advisor. Uh, and used his advice for a couple of years to invest in some mutual funds. And when I got financially literate, it turned out that they had not performed well at all. And actually, one of those mutual funds that we were putting our money in, we could just as well have invested in one of those S&P 500 index ETFs and had a very low-cost be investing in those uh, ETFs. We were also trying to achieve a, a higher rate of return that we could get through savings or or the general market. But at that time, we just honestly did not know how much we paid in fees through that mutual fund. And I'm actually kind of bummed about that advice we got back then. So I, for me, the reason why I'm so passionate about making this podcast is actually to telling people, hey, normal people can do this too. Normal people like you and I, a project manager and a journalist, we can do this too and actually do quite good uh, with this type of investing. Because if we didn't do good, then of course, you know, we wouldn't be spreading the word about this. So it just also gives me a lot of meaning in my life. Wow. And that, that's an incredible story, like of how you know, that happens to so many people as well. Like you think you can trust a financial advisor type of person or a wealth planner. And, and there, I'm sure, are really good ones. But so much of the time, you know, one criticism uh, that I've heard about is that sometimes they may not really have a track record that like that is uh, repeatable, you know? Who knows if, if some of these people who are giving the advice, if they also have, a good investment track record. So the tricky thing is a lot of them are not paid based on their investment track record. They're just paid by getting like whatever percentage fee from their clients. So it doesn't matter if they've actually done well in their own portfolios or their client portfolios, they get paid regardless. So I think that's an important lesson of many people to consider. If you're going to pay someone for advice, you should ask them serious questions about their track record and 
Like, how do you know that you can believe them and that they're able to generate future returns? Because a lot of people can promise you the world, but then under deliver, or maybe they invest in ways that they charge you a lot of fees, but give you average returns. And you could have gotten those same average returns from being in a low cost index fund, like you just said. Yeah, that's what we experienced, right? With, you know, and, and this person was actually, you know, came with some great recommendations and, you know, there'd been newspaper articles and we really thought that we were doing the best thing for us in investing in our future and in with investing using this advice. But like you said, what also became clear to me that we paid him regardless. What he earned his money on was, you know, getting paid by us, not from any returns necessarily, no matter how he would perform, it would still be the fees he got from us. And that's just something where, okay, hmm, now that I know about investing, I absolutely want to invest my own money and not let anybody invest for me. Yeah. I've seen that in other people's cases too. And, you know, it. It's not to say that people shouldn't go with their uh, wealth advisors. Like I was actually surprised. Like one time I asked some of my fellow millennials at work, like, do you guys use a financial planner? And they were like, some of them actually said yes. And I was surprised because I'm, I'm all about do it yourself. Like I've never used a financial professional for advice. So everything I've done has just been through my own learning or through some, maybe a little bit of advice from my a cousin and uncle who told me about, you know, some of their experiences during the dot-com bubble and, you know, some of the pitfalls that we might run into, but I don't consider that professional advice. That was just family trying to teach me. I, I totally agree that some financial advice is absolutely brilliant. We've also had an advisor that helped, helped us review our pensions and actually negotiated with some banks to to get you know the mortgage down on the house so there are absolutely some resources out there that is absolutely amazing and that we would love to buy again and invest in with our money again getting financial literate will also help you in making those decisions in who to who to actually hire right and it's and a good just, idea to know what you're doing right and you just brought up a great point of they they could be really good in specific areas like if they are an expert in mortgage uh, refinancing, let's say, maybe you've used one there where they can be of the most benefit. So it, it you know, doesn't have to be one size fits all. Like there's so much to personal finance and people can mix and match to whatever, you know, suits their portfolios and their comfort level with money. You know, I hope that's uh, something that we can all learn from. And, you know, we, it's all trial and error for all of us. Like, I, I think it's safe to say that neither Sina nor I were handed a silver spoon or, you know, we, we don't have you know, trust funds. So we're, we're just trying to figure this out and try to, you know, make it. So we're, we're just like you, who's probably listening of, we've probably been where you are, or you've been where we are. And we're, we're trying to just do it right so that we can hopefully have wealth for our families and, and be able to hopefully live a pretty comfortable life. So I think we're doing good by, you know, continuing to learn. And I think we're on our way. Talking about learning and in investing, we did open up a little bit in a previous show about some of the things that we're actually doing to, to learn about investing. And we talked about some of the 
investors that are uh, masterminds or role models for us. But we could actually talk a little bit more about our investing practices, especially since a lot of you that are listening might be busy professionals, just as me and Michelle. So Michelle, how much time do you actually spend on, you know, investigating companies or your investing practice per week or per day? Can you speak a little bit more about how much time you spend? Well, I would say it's a pretty big part of my life. I don't have a specific number count of how many hours, but I would say I put a lot of hours throughout the week and just keeping up with things like the Wall Street Journal and listening to podcasts or reading books. And right now I'm reading Warren Buffett's annual letters going back to like 1965 and back when it was also the Buffett Limited Partnership. So I'm I'm trying to constantly learn and um, like speaking of some of our mentors with Danielle Town and Phil Town, like I, I really enjoyed her idea of an investing practice. So, you know, she would say that she would organize her, her space so that it can accommodate what she's about to practice in investing. And she gathered also Warren Buffett letters. And she said that would be like doing an intensive. So some days I also just try to block out a few hours to read those letters and, and just take my time going through that because there, to me, there's no rush in investing. Like we are students learning for a lifetime. So to me, that's, it's just so exciting and fun to me that I can do this like at any time and all the time that when I find time to do it and, it it to me it's there's so much to learn like i have lists of people i want to learn from including nick sleep and also matthew peterson i want to learn more about the publications that they've shared with the world and their investing experience and try to learn from them and like so i feel like the sky is the limit in terms of where we can take um this investing practice and what is yours kind of like i'd also like to know what what it is for you yeah, in the very beginning, right after I I read Invested by Danielle Town, the book, I spent about an hour per week. Uh, and I was doing exactly like you mentioned, the investing practice and, and had topics. And I can actually link maybe in the in the show notes to 12 months of investing topics that I started out studying when I was a new investor. So I spent about an hour, but pretty quickly I actually started spending more time because it was you don't have to spend more time but I enjoyed it so much so all of a sudden I spent hours during the weekend and I was reading books and annual reports Buffett letters as you know uh, you mentioned signed up for for some newsletters uh, Guy Spears newsletter was one of the first newsletters I signed up for as well as Phil Towns uh, newsletter that's how I started by by focusing one month on month on one topic. Like for example, moat. One month of studying what is a moat. One month of studying how can I trust management. So yeah, I just went a month and read books or searched online for for some information about some of those topics. And it's so funny that you mentioned the office space and how how Danielle kind of set up her office because my office, you know, it's also set up for investing. Like I have the Berkshire Hathaway pen hold over here. I have a personal note that I received from Guy Spear, which I framed uh, right over here in front of me on my desk here. I have uh, 
a book I bought at the Bookworm, which is a bookstore in Omaha. So yeah, uh, it's kind of funny that you mentioned it. When I look around, there's just a whole lot of investing in on my desk and, and in this office here. Do you have any memorabilia or something like that as well? Yeah, I, yeah, in a similar way in my office, I also have like some of those books and uh, also like a Warren Buffett keychain that's hanging around and, you know, little things to remember our time in Omaha by, which is, you know, super fun. I mean, that's also part of this investing lifestyle. I mean, we are super dedicated, so I wouldn't necessarily expect everybody to, you know, want to do the same things, but um, I, I would say one true mark of some of us who are really dedicated to Warren Buffett, who's 92 still going on 93, and then also Charlie Munger, who just turned 99 on January 1, is that at least for one time, we saw them in person. And I'm looking forward to going again this year. And it was one of the best times of my life of being in an area with all like-minded investors and just being able to, when I met you, Sina, it was so exciting to me that, you know, we could relate. And um, I feel like there's not enough women investors out there to learn from. So I hope that, you know, one of my goals is that we can be role models to more future women investors. And, you know, so that's why I'm just super grateful to do this podcast with you too. And I, I feel like you want to say something. You're looking at me like all excited too. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about, you know, our time in <laughs> in Omaha. We had a just, yeah, out of this world, amazing experience in, in Omaha, meeting so many great people. You know, we met uh, Monish Paprai, Guy Spear in person. So And also so many Becky legends. Quick. Yeah, yeah, Becky Quick exactly had a selfie with her. And, uh, and, and, and one of the things about this crowd at the Berkshire Hathaway meetings, because when I got back to work, uh, my colleagues joked and said, so how was the Wolf of Wall Street party? <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, they thought I went to something like Wolf of Wall Street parties. No, it is everything but that. People are so kind and they're sharing. They're such, such a, it's a beautiful place to be. And, and that's also where, you know, you just know you want to be a part of a community like this where people are kind and nice and treating everybody right and I also think it you know when you listen to Warren Buffett he is sharing all of his knowledge and has been done that since the very beginning as you mentioned Michelle you're reading his annual letters where he shares all his wisdom so he's not holding anything back he's even donating 99 percent plus of his fortune to philanthropical purposes so yeah it's it's a it's an amazing crowd and yeah we we just had such a, a memorable experience and um, also I was going to say maybe um, maybe you could have told your colleagues that it's actually the Woodstock for capitalists so that would oh, yeah. have been <laughs> have that would have that. been a, another <laughs> W but a different W word uh, you know next time if if they ask uh but you can politely say it's actually the Woodstock for capitalists. So like, haha, ha, you know, it's the Woodstock for <laughs> capitalists. <laughs> exactly. And, and also the, the one little thing I was going to point at from you, what you just said was Buffett actually does hide a little bit in his letters. He doesn't just flat out tell people what Berkshire is investing in, but he tries to offer candor in, in reflecting on some of what he's comfortable with sharing. So he keeps some of his, 
you know, he doesn't reveal all his cards in terms of what he's actually planning to invest in or maybe is on his no no he's in mind. Yeah, no, I yeah. agree. He doesn't in, he doesn't reveal what he's investing in because yeah, everybody would invest in that before him and and the price would go up. But what I mean is he's sharing all of his knowledge about what he've learned he's learned from his mistakes and from Benjamin Graham, who was his teacher. So he's not holding back oh, the yeah. information about his style of investing. That's what mm -hmm. I meant. But yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he does not reveal to us what he's looking at, even though everyone wants to know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at the meeting, it, there's always that question, what are you investing in at this time or what should we invest in right yeah. now? So no, sure. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's funny. I mean, we we might get to find out up to 45 days after the end of the quarter when the 13F filing comes out, then we know, you know, all the oil and gas companies Berkshire invested in or, you know, other picks that were like, hmm, what what is the rationale between these certain investments? Like how come, you know, if it's not Buffett who invested in some of those, maybe his investing managers, Todd and Ted, maybe they invested in some other picks. So, you know, it makes you wonder how much of the investing is still being done by Buffett himself and how much he's trusting basically the next generation to invest on behalf of Berkshire Hathaway. So I'm sure that's also on everyone's minds of like when he will pass the torch formally to whoever the next future CEO will be. And we probably won't know that until, you know, that day comes, but, um, you know, it's interesting until then. And I hope that he'll continue to be like the main investor in what their Berkshire's choosing to be invested in. And like, it's, I think it's just so fun to follow along with that. I'm sure you do the same and checking out what are super investors doing and, you know, what's going on in the news with our favorite companies that we're keeping tabs on because, you know, just because we like certain companies or have talked about them, it doesn't necessarily mean we've invested in them or maybe we haven't yet um, committed to investing. Like maybe we bought one practice share, like to borrow from a Danielle term again of like, sometimes I buy like one or two shares just to get a little bit of skin in the game, but I don't consider that a real investment yet. I just say like, have that so I can keep track of it because Sometimes I made watch lists of stocks that I'm like, I don't really care. They're just like in some list and then they just get go to the back burner. But if it's actually money, I put real money into like these practice shares. Then I'm like, okay, now I need to start studying because, you know, if I don't, then I don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah. I actually have a little bit of a question for you for that. So how come you're buying these practice shares, buying one share what is it it does to you? What what are you achieving by by just dipping your toes? Try to explain a little bit more of that. Well, by by doing the dipping the toes thing, like I might have heard from say some super investors that they're considering positions in some companies, right? Or that they're invested in them. And I haven't done the homework yet to really know, do I understand this company? Um, is it within my circle of competence? But I don't want to forget about the company. So, you know, I, I'll listen to that super investor's argument and say, oh, that seems interesting. And, you know, in order to motivate me to learn more about the company, I'll buy that one share. So then it forces me to be like, all right, now you better take out the 10K and read it and not be lazy because I've had a bunch of companies on my watch list and I don't even get to them because 
I, I haven't invested even just a tiny amount to start caring more. So that's a little bit about why, like, also I feel like paper trading doesn't really work for a lot of people. If you're paper trading, it's like where you have sort of like this pretend portfolio. So like, um, let's say you, you put a bunch of stocks on this paper trading portfolio list and then you monitor their progress and you're like, okay, I, if I would have invested in this, I would have put $10,000 and then you track, how did that $10,000 do? But it's pretend that's paper trading. It's not actual. So it doesn't really affect your bottom line. So to me, I would rather not paper trade and I would rather just buy one practice share so that it's actually a real part of my portfolio, even though I don't really consider it a true investment yet. So it's sort of like in between. It's like a little bit of skin in the game to start caring and start doing more homework and research. And then if I'm more comfortable, then I'll actually buy a substantial amount of shares in that company. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, I, I haven't done that yet, actually, but I do see how getting that skin in the game would actually push me to you know, finish some homework in, in terms of, you know, completing a checklist of questions with, with that company and actually doing a report on, on that company. So it's actually a good idea to, to do that. The last thing he invested in, and I believe we talked about in the past was the TSM, which is Taiwan Semiconductor. And I know that you're studying uh, that company right now, Michelle, also to to get to know that company a little bit better. I thought it was a super bold move, especially because of, you know, macro politics uh, in that area um, and a lot of uncertainty around Taiwan and Buffett moving in. Is that a, you know, a political uh, thing he's doing there? He's usually not doing that but i just wondered hmm that's a pretty bold move when china has already communicated that they want to integrate taiwan into to being a, a chinese state and and that's some of the the macro politics that is going on right now in, in that region uh, so for him to actually invest in tsm i thought that was super bold with all the uncertainty in that region yeah, and, and um, I'm not sure fully what the reasons were. And and I don't know, actually, if it was him. Do you know for sure if it was Buffett who invested or could have been someone else? I don't know sure. if it was Buffett, but usually when it's that amount of money, it's usually Buffett. Usually Ted or Todd moves in with a little bit less to sort of dip their toes <laughs> almost. Actually, mm -hmm. maybe that's what they're doing. Uh, and then sometimes, uh, at least that's what Buffett has communicated in the past, that they might decide to go into a stock. But then sometimes Buffett comes in and says, nope, we're we're going to exit. But usually when they do it, it's smaller trade. We're talking $500 million or mm -hmm. small trades like that, just teeny tiny uh, yeah, <laughs> trades. It, yeah, it makes me wonder <laughs> what's the threshold like, or if he's gradually allowing them to... Uh, invest in bigger names because uh, I, I know historically Buffett would be the main investor behind the biggest um, investments, like the biggest equities that they have. So it's quite possible because TSM is their 10th biggest out of 49 equity positions. So it very well could be him. Um, like who who knows but for sure. 
yeah, but actually Todd uh, recently shared uh, why they invested in Apple uh, back in the day. And I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something around every weekend he would go home to Buffett's house and, um, you know, just verbally give Buffett a report on some of the S&P companies and Apple just kept coming up in those conversations. Uh, and that was Todd Combs that brought that to Buffett. Um, so, yeah. You never know who it is. It could potentially be one of those guys. But I just think with the volume we saw, Buffett must have somehow approved it. I would think that makes sense because that's a huge amount, even if it's still only about like 1.3% of the portfolio. But being that it's in the top 10 now, that's a big deal. Like like it was a super big deal when he bought into <laughs> Chevron and Occidental Petroleum, which are most likely Buffett too. Most likely he's the one calling those shots as well. So, I mean, I think what it says is even though Buffett always told people he's not so good at technology, like it's like technology is supposedly outside of a circle of competence, but maybe through these years, maybe it was Todd and Ted telling Buffett about how great TSM is and, you know, given their manufacturing importance to the world, you know, maybe they were like, there's no other yeah. semiconductor that can do what TSM does. So it makes it incredibly fascinating because it's not like they decided to buy a bunch of semiconductors like in the past Berkshire bought like the four major airlines and they put roughly the same amount in each of the four so that was like kind of diversifying among four bets but all airlines that I think Buffett ended up regretting when he sold in the early part of the pandemic but yeah when it comes to semiconductors as far as I could tell they, nobody invested in any other one as far as I can see. So it's only TSM. So you have to think, is this similar to Apple? It's not like, you know, back then, it's not like Berkshire invested in BlackBerry or Nokia or other phone makers or Samsung. They only invested in Apple. So maybe this is a similar play of TSM is one of the best and nobody else is like them. So even though of course, there's ongoing tensions between the US and China. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's not as bad as the media is making it seem. And that's what we need to remember is that like, you know, the media has its role, you know, we learn from news and whatever, but it doesn't or shouldn't dictate our investing decision. So maybe he's taking whatever is being published in newspapers uh, with a grain of salt and just being like, but you know what? I believe the investing thesis of my investing managers and I learned enough tech, you know, at 92 years old that I'm comfortable with investing in semiconductors, even though there's currently a glut of them, like there's too many chips right now. So, yeah. And it's so funny you mentioned that exactly that maybe now I'm, I know enough because I believe it was in 1967 in the annual letter, his letter to shareholders, that he wrote that he didn't know anything about semiconductors and he wasn't going to invest in that. Uh, so it, it's actually funny how he got he got smarter there. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, you know, we just gave you all a flavor of how we go about our investing styles and practice. And this is the way it's done. It's just by learning uh, from the best investors and trying to understand their investing rationale and see if we can adopt those approaches as well. So you know how, you know, practice makes perfect. And like, you know how they say, 
if there's if there's something that you want to be, you surround yourself with the people that you want to influence you because that's who you'll become. Like the five people closest to you are who you're most likely going to be like. So by us surrounding ourselves knee deep in Buffett and Munger stuff, we're we're getting closer to the master. So I hope that this was a helpful episode for everybody to learn from us. And Sina, I just wanted to ask if you had any closing words. Nope, I'm good. So thank you so much for listening in. I hope this added value to your day. Okay, bye-bye. If you enjoyed the show and found the content informational, we would be super grateful if you would leave us a review and follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you automatically get new episodes in your feed. We publish a new show every Tuesday. The contents of the Investing Mastermind podcast are for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. None of this is investing advice. And if you need help in your personal situation, please consult with a professional.